Six days before Passover in the town of Bethany, during dinner, Mary, the sister of Martha, takes a bottle of pure nard, pours it upon Jesus' feet, lets down her hair, and wipes it with her hair. Judas, the betrayer, the thief, responds. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Jesus retorts, let her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor, but you do not always have me. It's a beautiful, short episode. But what do you do with this story? How do you approach it? I told the Sunday school class in several months ago that Howard Hendricks, who was a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, was on a 747. And it was before 9-11 when planes flew with not many people on them. And the plane was only half filled, which you can imagine what a 747 will look like, half full. Which meant the flight attendants didn't have much to do. One was a Christian, and she happened to know Howard Hendricks was studying the Bible. So she came and sat next to the professor, started up a conversation, and one of his first questions was, how's your, how's your Bible reading? To which she responded, yeah, no, very good. I don't get very much out of the Bible. He turned around and gave her what we call the W's. Today, I would like to show how to use those W's. I'd like to show you how to observe a passage, how to approach the word, so that you can get the most out of it, but also so that you can teach someone else how to approach the Word of God. In an attempt to accomplish this goal, I'm going to exegete this magnificent little story in John 12 by using the W's. Now, unconsciously, most pastors who use expositional preaching, which our pastor does, place this template of five W's over a passage to extract the meaning that the author intended and to get the outcome and the application from the story. Now, no pastor or teacher is going to say, now, the first W is, the second W is. This would kill the beauty and the power of a story. However, this morning, I will note every W so that you can actually see how a pastor, an elder, or others study the Word of God and get the most out of it. Now, there is one fear that I have in doing this, giving you the W's as a tool for Scripture. My worry is that you'll be enamored by the analytical technique of the W's and miss the majesty of God. Years ago, there was a teenager who loved the science of astronomy. And as he got a little bit older as a teenager, his parents were very gracious to him and purchased a very expensive telescope for him, and he was very grateful. He was excited. However, the young man also enjoyed lenses. So he took the telescope apart, 
Now his goal was later to put it back together again so he could see the stars, but he wanted to look at the lenses to see how it magnified items, how it refracted light. The sad part is he never did look at the stars. This morning, I don't want you to be fascinated with the lens, the W, and miss the stars, the glory of God. Remember, the W's are not an end in themselves. They're simply an aid to pull as much from a passage so that you and I can encounter Christ and walk away in awe and in love him for him. So with that template of W's, let's look at the majesty of Christ. And I put an outline in your notes to help follow. The first W is when. When involves redemptive history. Where does this episode fall into the meta-narrative, the huge story of the canon? We always want context. In the Sunday school, they heard me say a hundred times, you have a full fourfold plot in Scripture. You've got creation, the fall, redemption, and recreation, or new heaven and new earth. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created, and it was good. God created, and it was good. And it goes through like this in chapter 1. When you get to chapter 3, though, it's a mess. Man turns his back on God, and we have the fall. Which means from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Malachi 4.6 is the announcement of the Redeemer, the one who will crush Satan and reconcile man. Then when you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the gospel we're looking at this morning, John, the Redeemer, has arrived. Yes. The second part of the WN is not only where does this episode fit in redemptive history, in this meta-narrative, but where does it fit in the book, the gospel of John. Now John starts off in verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he immediately identifies who the Redeemer is. Verse 14 in that same chapter says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He adds a human nature, the eternal Son. Then in verse 29, it tells us his mission. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So immediately in John, it gives us his identity and his mission. And the rest of John, through chapter 11, will provide seven signs. This is the term that John uses to verify Jesus' identity and his mission. And that's where we find ourselves of where John 12 comes in. It ends the seventh sign, which deals with the, rest, or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That's one bookend. And the, right after our episode and the story we're looking at this morning is the Passover, the celebration of the Passover. There's the when, there's the context. Number two is the where. This is easy. The country, Israel. Although most Americans 
couldn't find Israel on a globe, which is sort of sad. Of course, most of them couldn't find the United States. But um, it's a little itsy-bitsy country. But we also know from this passage the city, Bethany. It's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, which to most people is meaningless. But let me explain. You have Jerusalem at 25 feet above sea level. Then you have the Mount of Olives, a little bump. They call it Mount. We call it a speed bump. Um, Mount of Olives. And on the eastern side, Jerusalem is on the western side. On the eastern side is Bethany. If you went all the way down the hill to Jericho, which is 800 feet below sea level, it's quite a walk. In fact, Jericho is right next to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the Earth's surface. So if you're walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, that 3,300 feet altitude difference, your last stop before you go over the hill of the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem would be Bethany. That's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. We even know the house at this episode. So we got the country Israel, we got the city Bethany, and the house is and we get this from the Synoptic Gospels, Simon the leper, who no doubt had been healed by Jesus. We go to the third W, is the who. Who are the main characters in this story? Obviously, Jesus. John reveals to us through his Gospel that he is the sent one from the Father, the eternal Son who made flesh and dwelt among us, the light of the world, who is the way, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Good Shepherd who cares for his sheep, the miracle worker who has compassion on the needy and the lost. And then you have Mary. Now, i got to sneak over to Luke 10 to tell you more about Mary. Interesting lady, Mary of Bethany. She is devoted to the Lord's teaching. She feeds her soul at the feet of Jesus. She's not easily distracted by other activities. She's an intense listener. She knows her priorities, and she got them right. And while others involved in the hustle and the bustle of life, you will find Mary in the serenity of a room at the feet of Jesus, listening to every word he speaks. Did you ever notice that when you bump into Mary of Bethany, She's always at the feet of Jesus, literally. In Luke 10, she's at the feet of Jesus, listening to every word he speaks. In John 11, she's literally at the feet of Jesus, crying, telling him that she knows that he could have healed Lazarus, her brother, if he got there just a little bit sooner. And in our passage this morning, she's at the feet of Jesus, anointing him. A remarkable woman. Contrast, Judas. Judas is also known as Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is not his last name. It means man of Kirioth, which suggests he came from the city of Kirioth, which is in southern Judea. If that is true, He's the only disciple who is not actually from Galilee, which is interesting. 
Ironically, his name means praise Yahweh. It was a very common name in the first century. My guess is one of the reasons why it was very popular is a, the man known as Judas Maccabees. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a 400-year period. And during that time, the Syrians conquered Israel. And one of their kings particularly was evil towards the Jews. Judas Maccabees revolted, beat the Syrians, and created an independent Israel. And thus, a pretty popular man. One of Jesus' half-brother was named Judas. When translated into the English, you know it as Jude. And that's where that book comes from in the New Testament. Do you realize that two disciples were named Judas? One, Judas Iscariot, and the other, Judas, the son of James, who most likely was Thaddeus. Now, from verses 4, 5, and 6 in our chapter of John 12, we find out not only his name, but his character. He's a treasurer of the group, and he pilfers money from the treasury. You know, a little for Jesus, a lot for me. A little for Jesus, a lot for me. This is his character. We also find out his future. He's the one that will betray Christ. This brings us to the fourth W. And this is what? What looks at the major event or events in the episode? This episode takes place in the house of Simon the leper, as we just mentioned. It's dinner time, but we find out it's a very formal dinner, very much like the upper room. Might have been a triclinium arrangement. You have a low-lying table, and you have mattresses that circle this table. They do not sit as you're sitting, but lie down. And they frequently would use their left hand to prop up their head and eat with their right hand. Because it's a special banquet, no doubt Simon put it on in honor of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the only guest. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary also are guests of Simon. Not surprisingly, we find Martha waiting upon Jesus. Bless her heart, you always see her do that, and that is great. At this dinner, though, Mary suddenly honors the Lord by anointing him. She expresses her heartfelt love in four notable ways that touch my heart. First, she anoints Jesus' head. This is not found in John. We sneak back over to the Synoptic Gospels, and it tells us that she anointed his head. In the Old Testament, priests, kings, prophets were anointed. The reason they were celebrated this way, it was set apart unto God's service. The word anoint is, became a technical term for the coming one. The term Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew anointed. Sometimes a guest in the first century was anointed out of respect with olive oil. You're familiar with this in the 23rd Psalm. You prepared a table before me 
you anointed my head with oil. So Mary, she anoints the anointed one. I like that. The one promised in the Old Testament and the one sent by the Father. Number two, she anoints Jesus' feet. While Jesus was reclining at the table, Mary pours nard, expensive perfume, upon Jesus' feet. This is extraordinary for several reasons. Servants and not hosts and not guests would wash a guest's feet. Their feet would be washed with water, not oil. And perfume would be put on the head, not the feet. Third, she anoints Jesus with an extravagant amount. Not only does Mary use expensive perfume instead of the inexpensive olive oil that was typical, she pours the entire contents upon Jesus. Now ponder this. What she poured on Jesus was worth one year's wage. I'm going to say that again. The amount of expensive perfume she poured on Jesus' head and feet is worth one year's wage. The room was filled with extraordinary fragrance, but also Mary's extravagant love. To Mary, Jesus was not a mere guest. As the kings were anointed in the Old Testament, so she anoints the king of kings. Whether this nard was a future dowry she was saving or a precious inheritance she received, she gave it all, which was probably much of her net worth. Fourth, she anoints Jesus by using her hair. This is shocking. Because, number one, a servant would use a towel, not one's hair. And a woman would not expose her hair to other men. Normally, a husband would be very indignant if she saw her wife lower her hair, let her hair down in public. You see, a woman's hair was considered her glory. In fact, that mentions that. Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11.15. Though Mary was probably not married, her action would nevertheless have caused some raised raised eyebrows. Ah, but Mary, gotta love this lady. She's not counting the cost of the perfume. She's not going, ooh, 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 that's enough. Oh, no, no, no. And she's not worried about losing public fame. Her sole concentration is upon the Lord and desiring nothing else but to honor him. Another part of the W what is the disciples' response to Mary's action. This is a huge contrast to her. Look at Judas. He feigns concern for the poor just like he feigned loyalty to Christ. Judas was not a misguided person who meant well. Oh, no. This is a cold and calculating human being. He was a lover of money, pilfered from the money sack, as we just saw. And, of course, he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He is not interested in the poor. Judas is interested in Judas. 
Look at the disciples. Although it doesn't tell us in John, we learn from Matthew and Mark, the disciples said this, quote, The disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? Though the disciples may have had some altruistic motive, unlike Judas, their disapproval is shocking to me. They're worried about the poor, and they miss the wonder of the one who's in their midst. Remember, Jesus was not rich while he's on this planet. Earlier in his ministry, he told the disciples, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat because he didn't own one. He had to borrow a donkey because he didn't own one. He had to borrow the upper room because he didn't own one. In fact, he had to borrow an empty tomb because he didn't own one. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, which is a great passage, one of those ones you like to highlight, Paul writes this For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you may become rich. In his pre incarnate state, Jesus Christ owned everything. Because he created everything. In his incarnate state, he owned only the clothing on his back, and that was taken from him at the base of the cross. He assumed a human nature so the poor could become rich. Also remember Jesus ministered to all mankind, especially the marginalized, The lepers, the blind, yes, the poor, the sinners, and the other gender, the women. Sadly, the disciples missed what Mary grasped. Her deed was not an act of mere kindness. It was an act of worship. She knew Jesus was the Christ, the expected one, the Son of God, the one intimate with the Father, the Son of Man who controls the winds and the waves, the one who forgives sins, the one who provides eternal communion, the Lord of glory. So her awe and adoration simply spills over into lavish love. The final aspect of W what in this particular narrative is Jesus' assessment. While Judas and the other disciples are criticizing Mary for her extravagance, Jesus interrupts their comments, first with a command, let her alone. I like that. And then an evaluation, for she has done good to me. And in the Synoptic Gospels, it goes on, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will be spoken in memory of her. Jesus never said that to another person. Only about Mary. 
Country after country, century after century, Mary's example of effusive love for Christ has been proclaimed around the globe. And we fulfill that prophecy this morning, proclaiming her name. Thirdly, Jesus gives a rationale for her behavior. Jesus says, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now keep in mind the context. This is why we, we started off with when this takes place and where this takes place. It's between raising Lazarus from the dead and the Passover celebration. And during that celebration, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. Consciously or unconsciously, Mary has kept the perfume so she could perform the custom of preparing Jesus' body for burial. Though the disciples, or excuse me, though Jesus' warnings to the twelve fell on deaf ears, the warnings were heard by Mary. She's a good listener. The Lord had predicted his upcoming death many times. In Matthew 16, 17, and 20, in John 7, 8, and 10, Jesus warned the disciples, I'm going to die. Indeed, Mary not only listened to Jesus' prediction, but she acted upon it. She knew the extreme hostilities that was shown by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Consequently, she, when given the opportunity to honor the one who's going to face death, she seized the moment. Mary anticipated our Lord's arrest and possibly his crucifixion, and she anticipated the possibility that she would not be able to have the chance to honor him. And she was correct on both accounts. Immediately after anointing, the religious leaders sought both Jesus and, surprisingly, Lazarus. Why Lazarus? Because he's a walking testimony of the glory of Christ. They want them both dead. Fifth, the last of the W's, is why. You had the where, the when, the who, the what, and now the why. Why is this event in Holy Scripture? Why was it put there? When examining the transformative purpose of a passage, I asked myself several questions. Number one, how does this passage manifest Christ's glory? That is the theme throughout the Bible, is the glory of God. Marty, don't miss it. Remember, the Bible is not a moral manual. It's not a catalog of do's and don'ts, and it's not a series of studies and characters. It is Christ. The question that pulls at my heart when I read this passage is, what caused Mary to express so openly such effusive adoration? Of course, the answer is the person and the work of Christ. At the feet of Jesus, she heard his teaching, saw his power, and experienced his love. Thus, the natural outflow from her heart was adoration, amazement, commitment, gratitude, love. The second question I ask myself as I read through this passage is how does this passage help me change? 
I ask, how can I experience the awe of Christ as Mary did? How can I cultivate through the, through the Spirit such extravagant adoration? And the answer is, reflect upon the majesty of Christ. Stunning psalms in the Old Testament is Psalms 145, and I'm only going to take one verse from it this morning, and that's verse 5. David says this, On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on the wonderful works, I will meditate. Let me read that again. David writes, On the glorious splendor of your majesty, who you are, And on your wonderful works, what you have done, I will meditate. Ponder the attributes of the Savior as you see him through his works. Think of it. Simon. Simon the leper, no doubt, was healed by Jesus. So what does he do? Throw the Lord a banquet. Mary watches Jesus raise her brother from the dead. So what does she do? Anoint Jesus. It's just a natural outflow. You see, the the disciples heard Jesus, but Mary listened to him. The disciples saw Jesus' miracles, but Mary seemed to be overwhelmed with them. You know, evangelicals have, have to be careful. That's us. Because we love points and outlines and lists. In fact, I gave you that in your notes. Because some of you start twitching if you don't have that. You know, five ways to overcome anger, six ways to defeat temptation, seven methods to have your prayers answered. In fact, when I was standing back there on the table, I happened to see ten ways how to pray. We love lists. All of these lesson points can be true and helpful, but if the heart is not overflowing with the love and awe of Christ, then all of these lists and points are simply mechanical techniques that do not honor our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul explains the motive for our Christian life. It's a short phrase. For the love of Christ controls us. That's it. That's the motivation. There's only one motivation in Paul's life, and, and that is God's love for him. This is the one fact that dominates his life. This is the reason he would pray more, he would overcome temptation, he would control his anger. It is because God loved him. Like Mary, Paul's eyes are on Christ. His heart ponders the Lord's holiness. He has a single-mindedness, thinking of his majesty, his works, his words. True obedience is not a New Year's resolution. You're going to try harder. Okay, I'm going to obey God more. No, no, no. It's it's not how it works. Recently, I heard a sermon on Mark 9, not from this pulpit. It was the healing of the demon-possessed boy. And the theme the pastor had on his bulletin was this, the power of prayer. And the point of the sermon, or what the pastor was hoping that his congregation would do, is to pray more during 2020. Sadly, the pastor never focused on the glory of Christ as seen through the miracle of healing that boy. 
you remember the disciples couldn't heal the boy? They're concentrating upon themselves and they were not calling upon God. And then God healed the boy. I love Luke. It says this. When the crowd saw it, they were amazed at the greatness of God. See, the point of the episode is not that power of prayer. It is the power of the Savior who answers your prayer. You see, I don't need a motivational speech. I don't need an emotional challenge. I don't need a New Year's resolution to pray. You see, I talk to God because he's the one who controls the wind and the waves. He's the one who heals the sick, defeats the demons, controls death, forgives sins, and gives eternal life. That's my motivation. I want to talk to God. My problem, though, is that I can so easily become distracted by temporal things in this life and I end up missing the beauty and the splendor and the compassion of Christ. I become like Martha, and not like Mary. The Christian disciplines can easily become some routine and robotic activity. Bible study can become an academic study and not a transforming experience. It's like a husband, if I can pick on the men. It's like the husbands who stare at their iPhone, reading their emails as their wife is talking to them. And they do this. Uh-huh. Mm, yeah. Yeah, got it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They hear her words, but not her heart. This is why Jesus, earlier in his ministry, said to his disciples, this is Luke 9, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be handed over to other men. Think, contemplate, see the implication of what I'm saying. Let it sink in, Jesus says to his disciples. But you see, the disciples heard Jesus, but Mary, on the other hand, understood Jesus. She pondered what he said and did. She believed in the word. She was transformed by his deeds. Hence, no one had to encourage Mary to adore Jesus. She didn't need five ways not how to love Jesus. Her lavish love was just a natural outcome of her heart. When I was growing up in the church, we often sang this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Mary honored Jesus wholeheartedly because she deeply reflected on who Jesus is and what he's done. And as such, she didn't count the cost of the perfume. And she didn't care what others thought about her. Her single-mindedness prevented pride, distractions, boredom, and equivocation. Third, I asked myself, how does this passage reflect man's fallen condition, and how do I retreat at times to fallen attitudes? 
I got to look at my own heart. So how does the passage t tell you about the fallen condition of the world? And what does it tell it about me and sometimes what I do? Well, look at Judas. It illustrates man's depravity. At the fall, man became self-centered. He feigns autonomy. He becomes his own moral authority. He's self-directed. He becomes the king of his life, and he sits on the throne. For Judas, the self-centeredness was money. For others, maybe different. Could be fame, comfort, pleasure, power, security, authority, health. Depravity is the announcement, I am in control. God created man not because he was bored and not because he needed our praise. He created man, and I like this, so that we could experience God's love, enjoy God's splendor, and delight in his communion. But man turned his back on God, and he becomes a cosmic traitor. He became a transgressor. He became a loser, a loner, separated from his creator. As Judas betrayed Jesus, so humanity betrayed God. Look at the disciples. They reflect man's wrong priorities. That can be me sometimes. Involve a lot of activities and sometimes miss that which is most important. The disciples concentrated on the temporal, the poor, and not the eternal, Jesus Christ. Over and over again, Jesus told them that my ministry on this earth is short, and I'm soon going to be handed over, suffer, die, and rise from the grave. The disciples remind me of the man discussing with his family the need to buy asparagus. I know that sounds weird. Humor me. And the dad is talking to the family, and he says, listen, we need, it's important, we need to buy asparagus because it's low in calories, it has important vitamins, A, C, and K. I don't even know what K is. <laughs> Crucial potassium, oh, and antioxidants. And don't forget the high fiber. And the father is saying all of this in the midst of a 7.2 earthquake. No one would disagree the importance of buying asparagus because it's a healthy food. However, most people would find such a discussion in the middle of a catastrophic event a little misplaced. Here the family is on the verge of death and the father is thinking about food. That does sound like a guy. <laughs> the disciples are in the presence of Christ, the creator, the eternal son, the prophesied Messiah, the Lamb of God, the son of man who's on the verge of death. And they're thinking about the poor. Asparagus is important, healthy food, but not an appropriate topic during a 7.2 earthquake. The poor are important and precious people, but not an, not an appropriate topic on the verge of Jesus' death. 
Mary gets it. She understands who is in her midst and his imminent death. Mary discerns what's most important, and she seizes the moment. She's not like those dull-witted male disciples. The story is told of a little boy who made a little bit of extra money by rowing people across a river. And one morning, an old pompous scholar stepped into the little boy's boat. And just before the little boy started to row the boat across the river, the scholar picked a rock up from the shore and said, Son, how much do you know about geology? The little boy, I don't know anything about geology. The old man said, you have missed 15% of your life. And the little boy, continuing rowing. And the old man put his hand in the water and scooped up water and let it drip through his hands. And he said, son, how much do you know about marine biology? And the boy, oh, oh, oh my, um, marine biology. Um, I don't know anything about marine biology. The old man said, son, you have missed 25% of your life. And then suddenly the old man saw some cumulus clouds in the sky, and he said, son, how much do you know about climatology? (laughs) The little boy, oh, 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 oh. I don't know anything about climatology. Again, the old man said, son, you have missed 50% of your life. Just at that moment, the little boy noticed a huge wall of water coming down the river. The old man didn't see it because his back was turned to that wall of water. Apparently, the dam broke upstream, and this huge wall of water is coming down. And the little boy asked the old man, "Uh, Sir, how much do you know about swimming? The old man said, I don't know anything about swimming. Uh, Then you've missed 100% of your life. (laughs) At that moment, geology, marine biology, and climatology took a back seat to swimming. Geology, marine biology, climatology, and all the other ologies are important only in relationship to the one who created them. He provides the context for their meaning. In like manner, the poor are very important, but only in relationship to the one who created them. At that moment, what was most important was to understand who was in their midst, why he came, what was going to happen to him, where was he going to go, and Mary got it. While the disciples are scratching their head, she's preparing Jesus for his burial. And she does it with extravagant love. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus evaluates what Mary did. I love this verse. She has done what she could. What a statement. 
Mary had not only, excuse me, Mary may not have known all the details of Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha, that is the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion. But she seemed aware of the present hostility and our Lord's imminent death. And as a consequence, she not only honored Jesus when the opportunity arose, she did it with all of her resources and to the limit of her ability. She did what she could, and it was beautiful. Christian life is not a set of morals. It's not a mere acknowledgement of proper theological doctrines. It's pondering the identity of the Redeemer. It's reflecting upon his attributes and their implication. It's trusting and obeying his word. It's lavishly adoring him. It's loving him for his life and his sacrifice. Mary's knowledge of Jesus was not cold facts. It was personal experience. Indeed, she listened to the master. She believed the master. She was grateful to the master. She was in awe of the master. Months ago, I told a Sunday school class that about a party that was thrown in Beverly Hills. It was for the elite, the celebrities, the actors and actresses and the producers and you know, all those that were nominated for the Academy Awards and all. It was quite a scene. Oddly though, one old pastor had been invited. Whoa, out of context. And lo and behold, a discussion arose about the 23rd Psalm. And one actor had mentioned that when he was a kid, he memorized it. So some of the other actors and actresses said, oh, oh, recite it. Would you recite it for us? And this is the type of person that had, you know, the baritone voice, the proper intonation, the dramatic pauses, incredible presentation. So he recited the 23rd Psalm. Dead silence in the room as he went through every verse. And when he got done, there was a huge applause in the room. And then they turned to the old pastor and they said, are you familiar with it? Yes. Would you recite the 23rd Psalm? Now, at first he was embarrassed. Not embarrassed of the Psalm, but embarrassed of not having the incredible oratorical skills that the, the man who preceded him had. But nevertheless, the pastor quoted the 23rd Psalm. Again, dead silence in the room. And when he got done, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And somebody whispered to a fellow actor, why the difference? Why when the actor finished, there was applause? And when the pastor finished, there were tears. The man turned to him and said, oh, that's easy. The actor knew the Psalms, but the pastor knew the shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, our greatest desire is to know you like the old pastor, to honor you like Mary of Bethany, when we read about Mary, we're embarrassed at our meager love. 
and adoration. Help us to help one another to meditate on Christ's magnificent splendor and wondrous works. So the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Amen. Amen.